Cancer Advances, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals, exploring the latest innovative research and clinical advances in the field of oncology. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cancer Advances. I'm your host, Dr. Dale Shepard, a medical oncologist here at Cleveland Clinic overseeing our toxic phase one and sarcoma programs. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Michelle Kim, chair of the Department of Gastroenterology, Hepatology and Nutrition. She's here today to talk to us about the Neuroendocrine Tumor Clinical Care and Research Program. So welcome, Michelle. Thank you so much for having me, Dale. Absolutely. So maybe start off, give us a, a, an idea of what your role here is at the Cleveland Clinic. So um, I joined the Cleveland Clinic about six months ago now, um, and uh, very pleased to have uh, been asked to chair the Department of Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition. Um, and in that role, really asked to take what is already a terrific, very solid uh, department and uh, to increase the, uh, some of the academic output and also to develop an earner consumer program here. Excellent. So what were some of the big drivers that brought you to Cleveland? You know, I just thought it was the perfect uh, next step. I had been at uh, New York City at Mount Sinai for 17 years um, and had held a variety of roles there. And here at Cleveland Clinic, I thought there was such an opportunity to uh, really take what is a tremendous patient-centric um, department and to be able to uh, not only continue to provide quality care and streamline the care of those patients, but also to be able to uh, do research with all of the data that comes from seeing those patients and also potentially to build registries and uh, data banks uh, to be able to um, uh, advance the science of what we know of gastrointestinal health. Excellent. We're going to focus on neuroendocrine tumors. I think it's fair to say these are not particularly well understood tumors. Would you agree? I think that's very fair. Um, and certainly this is not something that anyone sets out to specialize in in medical school or in training. Uh, but I was very fortunate to have been in, exposed to it uh, as a junior attending at Mount Sinai and uh, to be mentored generously uh, by Dick Warner, who was really one of the grandfathers, godfathers of, of the neurocon tumor field. Yeah, excellent. So... Can we maybe start, as we talk about neuroendocrine tumors, just kind of from an educational standpoint, lots of terms get thrown around, including one that's a little cringy, which is benign neuroendocrine tumors, malignant neuroendocrine tumors, carcinoid tumors. Can you, can you just give us a really quick backdrop? What, what, is, what does that mean? What, what are we talking about? That's a great question and uh, one that frequently comes up actually with patients. So um, neuroendocrine tumors, of course, start out in the cells of the uh, enterchromaffin uh, cell and um, really are widely distributed throughout the body, about one-thirds in the lung, about two-thirds in the gastrointestinal tract. Um, and so while I would say another thing that's very important to say is that actually the incidence is uh, increasing over the past few decades. And so while the chances might not have been very high that you would see one uh, maybe you know, 30, 40 years ago, the instance is now um, risen so that it's much more likely that you actually will see it, and I think, and therefore, more important for everyone to know. Regarding your question about nomenclature and classification, uh, so I think the biggest question that comes up is sort of what's a neuroendocrine tumor, what's a carcinoid tumor, and are they the same thing? And generally speaking, in terms of nomenclature, we've been going more towards calling these tumors neuroendocrine tumors and really reserving the term carcinoid for things like carcinoid syndrome uh, that we specifically see in the midgut and let's say um, carcinoid heart disease that we also see um, with the midgut patients. 
And then in terms of sort of benign versus malignant, as you know, of course, all of these have the potential to be uh, cancerous. Some of them, though, are found very early, um, where actually there is a very limited malignant potential. And uh, so I think that it actually behooves all of us to be able to understand the biology and then to be able to understand ultimately what to tell our patients. And so we're going we're gonna to shift gears here in a second to kind of some of your research in the past and the program you're developing. But just so we understand scope, you mentioned instances going up. Is this from more imaging studies, more surgeries we find them? And what is that instance? How common are they? So I would say several decades ago, it was about one per 100,000, and now going up to about seven per 100,000. You know, we don't quite understand why this is. I suspect that a lot of it is a detection bias, and that it's related to the increase in cross-sectional imaging, and also in the endoscopies and colonoscopies that we're performing for other reasons. Uh, so many times these are found incidentally, but of course, many times these are also causing uh, significant morbidity and mortality. And then um, tell us a little bit about some of your, your major research interests in neuroendocrine. So um, I think what um, has been really fascinating about this field is that um, this is a very heterogeneous group of tumors. Uh, as I mentioned before, you can have them in different areas of the body and even within the GI tract. Let's say a neuronicon tumor from the stomach is very different from a neuronicon tumor in the small bowel or the rectum. Um, and so I think the first is sort of just understanding what to expect depending on where the primary site is. But in addition to that, we've got very limited um, ability to be able to predict how patients will do. So for instance, stage and grade, something that is used very commonly in, in cancers is you know, certainly uh, some of our leading biomarkers for, uh, for this condition. But that even within the same stage and the same grade, that you can have a tremendous amount of heterogeneity in how patients do. So for instance, um, for a metastatic patient with mid-gut uh, carcinoid, uh, with carcinoid syndrome, someone can have uh, a survival of 6 to 12 months or a survival over 30 years. And that's within the same stage and grade, and I find that biologically very interesting, um, but perhaps uh, for patients very disturbing, just not being able to say when you walk in the door which one you're going to be. Interesting. So tell us a little bit about the programs being set up. So this, I think, is a really fascinating opportunity and, and certainly one of the reasons that I came here. Uh, there's already a very strong, robust program with uh, endocrine oncology, with the surgeons um, that have already been established here, and there's actually a neurocon tumor board uh, that meets about once monthly. I think what we would love to see is to continue to grow that existing program and to also add to it now the GI presence. Um, and so gastroenterologists are among the first to see these tumors. They often will be, as I said, diagnosed on endoscopy or perhaps uh, seeing a gastroenterologist because of non specific symptoms. And so I think having a strong GI presence really adds a level to it that is not anywhere else in the country, to be frank, um, that uh, you can have patients come in with any type of neuronicon tumor from any area with any kind of biology, and they will receive outstanding care here because you have the right team to be able to see them. And we've had previous uh, episodes of the podcast, we've talked about things like um, endoscopic resections and things. Is that something that's being incorporated 
um, with neuroendocrine tumors? Yeah, absolutely. So um, this is definitely something that becomes very important. Um, we see a lot of these in the stomach, the duodenum, and the rectum, um, and those are particularly amenable to advanced endoscopic re resections. And so my colleagues, um, uh, Ahmed Bhatt and others um, who do a lot of the submucosal uh, and mucosal resections are invaluable partners to be able to ensure that these patients can have their tumors removed, uh, not necessarily need a surgical procedure, and then to have an excellent outcome long term. And then just from a programmatic standpoint, you mentioned previously things like um, databases and, and things like that. What 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 is the program doing in terms of collection of data and being able to sort of understand more about the natural history of these? So um, that's where, yes, I think that um, there are certainly um, external sources of uh, uh, sort of larger populations of, of patients, but that it's very important to be able to also get very granular data in these patients. And so we are starting up a neuronocrine tumor uh, registry that includes a prospective enrollment of every patient with neuronocrine tumors or with a family history of neuronocrine tumors. Um, and that will include collection not only of data uh, via questionnaire, but also of plasma serum and DNA uh, to be able to do biomarker studies and other studies in the future. And so I'm pleased to say that actually, I think we just recently got IRB approved, uh, and so that we will be able to start this prospective collection uh, very soon. That's great. From a, a research standpoint, what are some of the, the interesting research questions that are being raised? So um, as I said before, I think one of the great interesting things and perhaps the great opportunities in neuronocrine tumors is to be able to predict outcomes uh, sort of from, from the start. And this is where there's just a tremendous amount of heterogeneity and we just don't have a lot of good answers. Uh, and so um, the uh, places where I have been before and where I plan to be in the future are essentially looking at different approaches to be able to predict outcomes. And so whether it's, for instance, more basic level data in terms of, uh, you know, race ethnicity and comorbidities. And I think here, one thing that's important uh, that might not be important in more aggressive cancers is survivorship and understanding, like, is the neuroendocrine tumor the dominant issue or is their cardiovascular disease going to be the dominant issue and sort of understanding that uh, balance. But then I think also, you know, currently involved in some other studies, including uh, digital image analysis and um, artificial intelligence to look more objectively at existing pathology slides and again to be able to perhaps delve more deeply into potentially other predictive biomarkers uh, that might be able to help us in our prediction of, of patient outcomes. And I guess you can only really treat patients when you know that they have a neuroendocrine tumor and and you talked about increased incidence and, and detection and things but historically just having patients show up with symptoms and and things and, and, and even identifying these as neuroendocrine tumors has been a problem. Is that getting better? Um, that's a great question. So I think that this is actually a real opportunity for some folks. And I think, you know, there's a lot of um, information out there in the internet and patients come in and sometimes very savvy and having had a really extensive workup. This is where actually I think gastroenterologists are very primely placed to be able to make that diagnosis or to exclude it um, and to honestly to maybe end the madness um, so that the extensive testing can stop. Uh, because certainly if you have, uh, I would say the most common thing I see is if you see, if you see flushing and diarrhea and there's a suspicion for carcinoid syndrome and perhaps you do a 24-hour urine collection for 5-HIAA, those symptoms and that 
let's say, abnormal test does not in itself create a diagnosis of an endocrine tumor. You have to have a tumor localized. You have to have a biopsy that confirms that. Uh, and so um, there are a lot of patients out there who may have flushing or diarrhea or both and perhaps also have a, an elevated um, uh, urine collection that then you have to sort of understand, well, like, why why is this and why are they flushing? And it's probably something different that's not related to the endocrine tumor. And one thing I will say is that there are an awful lot of reasons why tumor markers can be um, abnormal and falsely positive. And uh, one of them I'll say for the 24-hour urine collection is that diet is um, a prime reason why I see that these are often uh, elevated. So an understanding of sort of what the symptoms are, what you might be looking for related to those symptoms and how best to find that, I think is really the ticket. Do you think we'll come up with better biomarkers? You mentioned things about biomarkers. And so it's always been an area of frustration, I got to tell you, in patients that I've seen that there's such fixation on their chromogranin level and what's going up and down. And some people measure numerous things and well, quite honestly, doesn't normally do much other than aggravate the patients. Is, is there any anything on the in the future that might either help us use what we have better or sort of replace those measures? Yeah. So I think, you know, you describe really um, perfectly um, the imperfection of, of these biomarkers. And none of these were meant to be screening biomarkers um, for endocrine tumors, and particularly chromogranin A, which is used very frequently. Uh, one thing I'll say is that our imaging has really gotten much better leaps and bounds better. And so the gallium um, or copper uh, dotatate uh, PET CTs um, are now able to image with incredible sensitivity and specificity. And that has been, I think, a game changer. And then I think a, a better understanding that these biomarkers are imperfect, that checking a panel of eight to 10 biomarkers and sort of understanding, well, what are you looking for? What is this going to mean if one of them comes back elevated? Because at least one of them will come back elevated. And you know, you've got to know then what, what you're going to do and what you're going to tell the patient. In terms of better markers, you know, I think that there are some on the horizon, but none that are ready for prime time. Um, and I think in the meantime, this increased sensitivity with our dotatate PET CTs is actually a really great advance. And I guess just sort of on that imaging standpoint, within neuroendocrine tumors, is there is there much of a risk of over-treating patients because we find things we never knew about in the past? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So this is where you have to understand, like, what is this tumor going to do in this patient's lifetime? And, you know, sort of understanding that this is really the long game. This is not some short marathon sprint. So, you know, often I, I will see, for instance, in our dotatate PET CTs, that they are picking up um, many more tumors than what we're seeing on cross-sectional imaging. Uh, and, I, and I think really being able to advise our patients, like, listen, this is not tumor progression. Your tumor is not out of control. It's just an increased sensitivity that we're seeing here. And then understanding that you need to uh, understand the pace of the disease and balance that with the other comorbidities, which, you know, as we're all getting older and, and our patients are getting older uh, and more frail, that this may not be something that is clinically relevant to you now or perhaps ever. Well, I guess... Um... You know, a lot of this we've been discussing is about education and how much is engagement with advocacy groups. And certainly within this disease, they have some pretty robust advocacy groups. And um, how, how is that relationship with your program? Yeah, no, I think that, um, you know, advocacy groups were really born out of 
not having enough information, especially before the internet and, and having all these different groups, um, and having just a, f a limited number of providers who could advise patients. Um, and so they've been a really key partner in many ways, you know, creating patient educational um, forums in creating, honestly, foundations that fund research. And, and so, you know, the patients that are uh, affiliated with these groups or that, um, you know, go to the sessions that are organized by these groups are inevitably better um, educated and, and have a much better understanding of their disease. I mean, I think probably because there are such a large number of patients with relatively indolent disease, there's certainly a handful of people around the country that many, many people go around and, and, and visit and get opinions and things. So that being the case, is, do you see there being an ideal patient type that should come to a specialty center? And I mean, who, who should come to Cleveland Clinic or a specialty um, neuroendocrine program? Um, I think there are a few different types of patients who could really benefit from being seen here. And I will say that some of them I've actually even seen in the last several weeks, and, and I can attest to you know perhaps their satisfaction. So the first is certainly patients who have not been diagnosed and perhaps have um, abnormal markers and have had a really million-dollar workup and are just confused about whether they have one or they don't. To be frank, many times if the neuro consumer can't be found, many times it's not there, just given that it's fairly uh, rare and that other conditions are more frequent and common. Uh, but I will say that um, I've been able to give peace of mind to some people who don't know and don't understand why their markers are elevated. And sometimes we don't know either. But at least just with the decades of experience that I and others have, we can be reassuring and, and sort of exclude the diagnosis fairly firmly. So that's, I think, the first set of patients. The second set of patients is certainly anybody who is newly diagnosed. There are a lot of questions here. Um, people don't understand how they're going to do long-term. Um, there can be a lot of anxiety um, and quality of life issues around this. And so I think when they're first diagnosed, it's a really great time uh, to come and see us. And whether it's a first opinion or a second opinion, I think that's a really great time. And then I would say, finally, uh, anyone perhaps who is getting very different opinions from other institutions. And, and this happens very frequently in very sort of high-profile institutions that you can get different opinions just because of the experience of the doctors that are uh, and, and the institutional biases that you have in any given place. Um, and it's not to say that one is better than the other, but that the experience is different and that sometimes there are different ways that you can treat someone first line and they're actually all acceptable, even though they're all very different. Um, and so, um, you know, anyone I think who has questions about this or who is not sure in, in the current management, I think is, is a perfect patient to be seen here. What are some of the things that we have to offer here in terms of ablations or novel therapies or if, from a diagnostic standpoint, what are the things that are some of the big highlights? Right. Um, so we certainly have the dotatate imaging that I was uh, talking about before, and this is, of course, a must at any uh, high-volume neurocontumor center. Um, I think what we have here that distinguishes us from perhaps other institutions is a really collaborative, robust um, group of people who are dedicated to the care of these patients, uh, because it is 
one thing to see this uh, you know, a few times a year and somebody who sees this every week. And so you need to go to a place that has a high volume of these kinds of patients. And what I love about our group um, you know, in the last six months is that it truly is a very collaborative group that we're always thinking creatively. We want to see if um, you know, this therapy is an option, why that might be maybe a better option than a different option. And it's a very thoughtful group that I think is really considering the patient and personalizing their treatment for that particular person. And and then finally, I think that um, what I've seen so far again has been just, you know, for people who have come in, uh, not just from uh, the local area, but also people who come in from out of town, out of state, and even out of the country, that the care can be just really seamlessly coordinated for a visit here, um, such that um, everything can be done sort of in um, a very time-compressed kind of way. Well, that's great. So certainly not common tumor, but more common tumor over over time, misunderstood, and you're doing great work to uh, put together a really cohesive group. So appreciate your insights. Thank you so much. To make a direct online referral to our Toxic Cancer Institute, complete our online cancer patient referral form by visiting clevelandclinic.org slash cancer patient referrals. You will receive confirmation once the appointment is scheduled. This concludes this episode of Cancer Advances. You will find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash canceradvancespodcast. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from Cleveland Clinic's Cancer Center experts on our ConsultQD website at consultqd.clevelandclinic.org slash cancer. Thank you for listening. Please join us again soon.